A quick warning that the subject matter of this episode is infant loss. Here's the show. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Before we get into this week's episode, just know that you're going to have a couple questions that just pop up, and we're going to answer them after the credits. They're an FAQ, Frequently Anticipated Questions. Yes. Okay, here we go. In case you have never had anyone in your life die, good for you. And just wait. And this is how it usually goes. First, you die. Sorry. Then someone comes to wherever you died and takes you to a funeral home. Once you're there, you have a couple options. You could be set on fire in a controlled inferno. We typically refer to that as cremation. Or you could be embalmed which means that your dead body is pumped full of chemicals to preserve you forever. And then someone covers your dead body in makeup so that you look lifelike, but not not really alive. Either way, you're placed in a fancy box that costs a lot of money, and then we have a couple options, like we might just sprinkle you around, or keep you on a bookshelf, or we take that fancy box... We put it in a concrete tomb in the ground. We cover that concrete tomb with dirt. We place a piece of marble on top of that dirt. And this is where your loved ones will visit you at your piece of marble a few times. I wanted to say a few times a year, but realistically, just a few times, period. It's a good place to be appropriately sad. But otherwise, where you are is creepy and we avoid it. Like we hold our breath as we drive by you. All of this typical death and burial stuff involves giving our dead loved ones over to strangers. People who never met you when you were alive are going to be the last to see your nakeds. Just think about that. (laughs) But it also, aside from your nakeds, it also involves a lot of money. It involves a lot of it. Like on average, anywhere from seven to $10,000, which... When your dead person is really old and you're squeamish about nudity and bodies in general and you're from a culture that fears death and hides it under fancy caskets and ham lunches, this seems fine. But it seems a lot less fine when you're thinking of the baby you gave birth to a few months before. And that is how Kat found herself in her backyard on a cold January day, burying her only son. In the third trimester of her pregnancy, Kat's son was diagnosed with trisomy 18. Up until very recently, it was defined as incompatible with life. That's the term that people use, doctors use, when they describe trisomy 18. Doctors were told not to resuscitate babies after they were born, not to intervene and let them die, basically. Trisomy 18 is considered very rare. Fewer than 20,000 cases a year, which actually, to me, does not sound rare. That sounds 0% rare. That's an entire stadium filled with babies. Filled with babies who have trisomy 18. And this is what each and every one of those trisomy 18 parents find out. Um, The statistics say that the vast majority of these babies don't live to be 
born. And the ones that do survive, if they make it past their first 24 hours, their chances of survival are better, which isn't saying much, (laughs) given the statistics. And then the vast majority of them die before they reach the age of one. Now, death is inevitable for all of us. Yes, we know this, sure. But it's different when death is present, when it's looming over your child, waiting to take him since before your baby was even born. It's crazy. I mean, at 32 weeks, you're supposed to be buying cribs at Target, and I was looking at cemeteries or trying to decide on whether he would be cremated or buried. And it was during that time that I was reading about burial, and I came across an article written by a mother whose daughter died of breast cancer. And when she died, they just kept her body at home, and they... They had an extended visitation for a couple of days where people came and said goodbye and, and, and saw her there. And then they buried her in home. And so that's when I started doing the research to find out what we could do. The more Kat and Jim thought about how their time with their son could be non-existent, or at the very best, extremely abbreviated, the better that sounded. It also sounded a little odd. They'd never been to a home burial. They didn't know anyone who had been to a home burial. They had, however, both been at a home birth, very unintentionally. I um, did tub labor with my oldest, and then with Hazel, she actually was born on the couch accidentally. She came in an hour and a half, and the EMTs barely made it to deliver her. The most embarrassing part was not the fact that the EMTs burst through my front door and I'm naked on the couch, like spread eagle pointed at the door where all these men come bursting into my house. It was that I was watching Titanic when Hazel was born. So So you were like, hi, baby, we're watching Titanic because I need to know how it ends. (laughs) This birth was not going to be Titanic on the couch. Kat and Jim had a lot of discussions with their doctor about what was going to give this baby the best chance for survival, and they decided on a C-section. And it was so different than seeing my daughters born because they were born pink and screaming, and he was completely blue and limp. And then I just burst into sobs, and they took him to the incubator and started working on him. And my husband was with him holding his hand while they resuscitated him. He told me later that he felt like he'd won the Super Bowl that day when he got to hold our son alive. And they brought him over to me and they laid him on my chest. And he was such a beautiful baby. And it sounds horrible, but I had been so scared because so many of these babies have visible birth defects. I remember being scared of that and then holding him and just seeing my son and how sweet and lovely he was. And I was so relieved that he was okay. He really was so beautiful. Yeah, he just was. He was beautiful. Kat and Jim name this beautiful boy James. And they bring James home to his big sisters to live his life, however short and however complicated his life may be. I mean, the first morning that we woke up, he had his oxygen tank, he had his feeding pump, he had all of the stuff that had to go with him and we it took us an hour and a half to move him and I just remember thinking oh my god I can't do this I can't take care of of him the way he needs to be taken care of I just panicked and you've got the girls yeah 
Oh, the girls. James's big sisters, Evelyn and Hazel. Evelyn and Hazel do what big sisters do. They invite James to family movie night. They snuggle him. They read with him. They just accept him exactly as he is. And Kat takes a cue from her girls. I don't know. It just, for some reason, I made a 180 and I was like, I can do this. From the beginning, this was a lot. James was in and out of the pediatric intensive care unit. He'd go from hospice to palliative care, back to hospice. He'd be in the hospital, and then they'd all be home again, just doing ordinary family stuff. Most of his time was at home with us, and he was really happy. And I remember this one time, he was in his little bouncy chair, um, the vibrating chair with the little mobile over it, and he fell asleep, and I moved him to his his bed, and I came back, and I was cooking, and I turned around, his seat was empty, and it hit me when I looked at that empty chair that one day it really was going to be empty forever, and that was like being shot in the heart. At about five months old, James's doctors had agreed to put in a breathing tube to help make him more comfortable. The surgery was risky, and they understood that James was having a procedure that could either extend his life or end his life. And there was no way of knowing what would be. So, the night before his surgery, Kat and her husband Jim requested an adult-sized hospital bed, and they stayed with their son all night, just like they always did. And so we both kind of squeezed into that bed, and he was between us, and we played music from when we started dating when I was 17, so we were listening to, like, Better Than Ezra, and we were just talking about when we were young and clueless and telling him stories about Mommy and Daddy when they started dating when I was a senior in high school. And it was just this magical night. It was just wonderful. He was really awake and interactive with us. I have a video from that night where he looks over at his daddy when he hears his voice, and it's my favorite video. I watch it. I watch it all the time. Hi, Grub. Hi, it's Daddy. Hi. Yeah, you say hi to Daddy? Hi, Fatty. Don't call me Fatty. Don't call me Fatty. These are guns. Look at the guns. Come on, say a word for us. When he was diagnosed, the doctors told us that their babies are vegetables and they don't recognize their parents' voices. And I love this video because he looks for his daddy and then he, 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 he smiles when his daddy comes over to him. And that was the night before he had surgery. James's surgery goes really well. For two days, it seems like things are good. But then he starts to crash. He just started to spiral at that point, started to go downhill, and I knew it was bad. I knew it was bad then. It was really bad. It was the end. At five months old, 
two days after the surgery that had gone so well. And at 6 a.m., we were both awake and sitting on his bed, and I looked over, and he went completely blue. His skin just went completely blue, and his heart rate plummeted. His oxygen levels plummeted. And the nurses came in, and they, they took him off the ventilator, and they started to manually breathe for him with a bag. And I said to the nurse, give him to me, because I thought he was dying. And so they put him in my arms, and he was limp. And I said... I had told him the night before when things were really bad that if he needed to go, I would be okay and that Daddy would be okay. So we told, I told him it was okay to go, and I thought he had made that decision for us. I thought he was going, and my husband was sitting next to me, and I said, we have to let him go, and I wanted him to stop breathing for him, and I just wanted to hold him, but my husband wasn't ready yet. And he said, don't stop breathing for him. And I, I got so angry at him. I, I, I put James in his arms and I got up and I was pacing around the room. And I was like, you're, you're making me a liar. That's what I said to him. It's, I feel terrible that I said that to him when our son was dying. But I said, you made me a liar. And then his heart rate came back. His heart started beating again. And he started, his oxygen levels started to come up again. And back and I don't know if maybe he knew his daddy wasn't ready to say goodbye to him yet but he came back Evelyn and Hazel arrive and get into bed with their parents and their baby brother the grandparents are there the uncles James is just surrounded by the people who love him we've said this before on this show but Even when you see the end coming, even when you know how the story ends, it doesn't make it any easier to turn the page. One of James's grandfathers is a pediatrician, and when Kat asked him what he thought about James, he said, I think he's tired. I think he's worn out. He said that as a doctor... And he said that as a grandfather. And he was right. And so we told the doctor, and and they said that they would bring in fentanyl, which is a very strong opioid painkiller, and they would bring in midazolam, which is an anxiety medication, and they would give that to him to make sure he wasn't scared. And so at around 12.15 on the 2nd of January, they brought these medications in, and the nurse had them on her towel and I saw them and I thought we're going to euthanize our son (laughs) and I felt panic just escalating inside me but I kept calm on the surface and and I took James and handed him to my husband and just moving him from the bed to my husband's arms he started to turn blue and get stressed and they gave him the midazolam to calm him down and then they turned off the ventilator and we held him while he died and he died at 1.12 p.m. on the 2nd of January, and his mommy and daddy were holding him. It's a decision that will haunt me for the rest of my life, no matter 
how much I believe what we did was the best thing for him. It's still going to, I tell myself that he woke up to tell us goodbye, that he was ready to go because people say that that there's this thing called terminal lucidity where people wake up and come out of dementia or fog to say goodbye. And that's what the nurses told us he was doing. But part of me wonders if he wasn't asking us not to give up on him. So I live with that every day, even though most of me knows that, that it was the right thing to do. We held him for a long time, just howling, basically, crying, sobbing. And then at some point I said, we're ready to go home. And I stood up and I walked out of the room holding him. And the nurses looked horrified. I mean, just absolutely panicked. And one of our favorite nurses says, I don't think you can do that. (laughs) And I said, no, I can. I've done the research. I said, it's legal in the state of North Carolina to transport his body and to bring his body home myself. There doesn't have to be a funeral director involved. But then they tried to stall us while they made frantic phone calls to find out if what we were doing was legal. (laughs) They said, we have to find you a car seat. And I was like he's gone. Why do we need a car seat? And they were like, well, what if you get pulled over for speeding or, and you're holding him? And I was like, Uh, least of my worries right now. Yeah, exactly. And no one had ever done this before at this hospital. No one had left with their baby. And I basically just walked out with all these nurses trailing after me, (laughs) looking, looking really worried about what was happening. And we walked to our car. I held him in my lap, um, held his body in my lap on the way home. I love nurses. I love them so much. I think they are so wonderful. And so I just want to take a moment to stay here in this situation because... Cat and Jim's baby has just died. And the nurses were there. It's sad for them, too. He's not the first dead baby they've ever seen, but he is the first whose parents want to take him home, which is also so crushing. That this situation is so unusual that these nurses don't know what to do. And I think it speaks a lot about the pureness of their hearts that the best stalling tactic they could come up with was, you need a car seat for your dead baby in case you get pulled over because the cop might be sad. (laughs) I just think it's really sweet. I think that situation at its core is so sweet. Like you work in a hospital. If you're looking for a way to stall people, may I suggest inventing paperwork? for them. I always, I feel like I'm always signing forms going, I'll sign anything. If you were like, oh, you can't leave until you sign this form, I would sit there for probably years. I would just believe you. Anyway, um, James was not in a car seat. Kat did not get pulled over. And she also didn't break any laws. She just took her son home. Because she was still his mother, and he was still her baby, and she was just doing what mothers do. She was taking care of him. She was loving him. Like she had his entire life. 
this seems like a good time for all of us emotionally to take a break and hear from our sponsors. When you support our show with a financial donation, you're not just helping make a great podcast. You're also joining a secret society we call the Terrible Club. It's a private Facebook group, and we use it to connect uh, over all kinds of things with our listeners. We have seen people make legit friendships. We share episode ideas and clips. We throw surprise parties for one another. Hint, my birthday is coming up, friends. Nobody's done that yet, but I feel like it could happen. Make a donation of $5 a month or more at ttfa.org donate, and your invitation will be in the mail, uh, the email, the, uh, the electronic mail. So we're back, and James's family is back from the hospital. They get home around 5 o'clock that day. Before James's death, they had bought a cuddle cot, which sounds cute. It is um, cute and sad. It is a small cooling unit. It's basically a little blanket that fits under a baby, and its whole purpose is to preserve a small body, keep it cool. So they wrap James up in his cuddle cot, and they gather around him as a family. And after he died, I could not think of any other way that I would want to say goodbye to him than to take him home and let him be in his bed and have his family come and say goodbye to him and then bury him where he, the only place he'd ever known besides the hospital was our home. As unusual as all this sounds, this is how we used to do things. We didn't rush our dead away from us. We cared for them ourselves. And that's all that Kat and Jim did. For two days, they talked to James, they slept beside James, they mourned him. James came home on Monday and his funeral was on Wednesday evening. So Kat and Jim told their friends and family the visitation would begin at noon. They woke up on Wednesday morning and got their son ready to say goodbye. We wanted to bathe him one last time together, so we took him and gave him a bath in his little pink his little pink whale bathtub and my husband was just weeping beside me but I felt like I was his mommy so I had to do this for him so we dried him off and we dressed him in one of my favorite little outfits of his it was his little tan pants and a little whale sleeper that I loved on him I didn't want him wearing something that I'd never seen him in I wanted him in his comfy little baby clothes so we we dressed him and and then we brought him out to the living room and people and food flowers people started pouring in at 12 o'clock it was it was amazing and it was so comforting to be in our own home so that when I felt overwhelmed I could just go hide in my bedroom and you know there wasn't this artificial time restriction we could do what we wanted when we wanted if I wanted to take his body and and hold it then I could do that there was just there was just complete freedom to do what we needed to do in that time James's funeral was at 4:52 p.m. that's the same time he was born Kat and Jim had picked a place in their backyard under a maple tree and their friends 
showed up and turned their backyard into a gravesite, which is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Imagine losing a child, which is unimaginable for so many of us, not because we can't, because we just don't want to, but just imagine that and imagine looking out your window to see your friends mulching your yard, digging up your earth, building a fire to keep your family warm. And they did all of this without being asked so that James's family could just focus on James. We told him that we were proud of him and that we loved him forever and we would never forget him and that we were so glad that he was able to give us five months because, you know, it was a struggle for him. And and we, we just kept telling him how proud we were of him for being such a strong little guy and giving us so much in his short time with us. Before the funeral began, Kat and her husband wanted time alone with James at his gravesite, just the three of them. I remember we were sitting by the grave holding our dead baby, holding James, and we smiled because we were getting to say goodbye to him in the way that was was healing for us. And so we sat out there for about 20 minutes, and then the most amazing thing happened. There was a rainbow. It wasn't even raining. It was the weirdest thing. We were going to sing Over the Rainbow because I sang that to him when he was sick and And my husband read his eulogy while I held James, and then I read mine. And our friend read a copy of the book on the night you were born. And then I knelt knelt down and I put his body in the coffin. And I didn't think about it at the time, or I didn't realize I was going to do it, but I took off my wedding band. And it has my husband's initials engraved on the inside and the date of our wedding, which is July 2nd. And I put it on his hand. And his sisters had picked out special things to put in the coffin with them. My oldest had picked out a picture she made of herself at preschool surrounded by popsicle sticks, a little popsicle stick frame. And my youngest, who loves Disney princesses, had picked out two of her princesses, which are very special to her, to put in the coffin with them, even though I told her she wasn't going to have them get to have them back. They would stay, and she picked them out. She put Sleeping Beauty in there. Um... And then I just knelt there while they put the lid on the coffin. I just stayed kneeling in the dirt and just, I don't know how I did it. And after he was buried, I went and I laid five rainbow roses. And then, I don't know if the right word is relief, but maybe release would be a better word. There was this sense of letting go for a little bit and we were able to do it in such a a gentle and peaceful way for us that we could smile about it even though it hurt like nothing you can imagine. So, there it is. Closure. Kat is no longer sad. James is in the past. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's so messed up. And also not a thing. We know. Not how it works. But when Kat needs reassurance, when she needs comfort, James is there. He's right there. And she can see him. 
from her kitchen window. Our children go out there and visit him. I went out one day and my three-year-old had scattered um, flowers all over his grave. So I think it brings them comfort too. At the beginning of this, Kat described Trisomy 18 as incompatible with life. She said that and those words got lodged in my ribs and I cannot shake them loose. Because all of this, of course, is incompatible with life. It's incompatible with the life we want for ourselves and others to have a world where some babies lose the genetic lottery, where some mothers bury their children, where kids never get to play with their little brother. It's incompatible with the life you imagine that you could be 32 weeks pregnant and planning for a funeral while you hope for a birth. It's incompatible with life, but it is life. Life is full of these moments that break you apart, and within them are the moments that stitch us back up. It's not just that you get pregnant with a child who's so sick he may not live even a single day. It's watching your healthy children love him regardless. It's holding him when he dies. It's bathing his small body, dressing him, watching his sister spread flowers on his grave. This, all of this, is life. There shouldn't be a break in understanding of life and death. They, they, they exist together all around us all the time. Animals die, plants die. And I feel like we try to protect children from death because it's scary and it shouldn't be scary. I mean, nobody wants to die, but it's part of the reason that we brought him home and part of the reason that we buried him at home was because we wanted our children to see him from the beginning of his life to the end. We didn't want them to him to disappear somewhere and they not understand where he'd gone. I used to be terrified of dying. I used to think about my own death all the time and what it would be like and and then I held my son when he died and I saw what it is. It's just another door that we all have to go through. Seeing my son die gave me peace about my own death in a lot of ways. And I think that hopefully our children seeing death as part of the natural order of things will help them as they grow older and, and to not be afraid of it. James's first birthday has passed, and the girls had cake and celebrated his short, extraordinary life just like Kat promised, and just like they always will. And it seemed sometimes when I talk about him, his death becomes the thing that people remember about him, that she had a baby that she loved very much and he died. But it was the ordinary beauty of a child being at home after they'd been born. His grandparents came and visited him. We had Thanksgiving together as a family. And when I think about him, I don't think about the funeral. I don't think about the diagnosis. I don't think about his death. I think about the five months we had with him. And yes, he was sick and he was in the hospital, but he was also just my regular baby boy. And in five months, we surrounded him with love and he had more love than most people will ever have in a lifetime. And it's those that beauty that I remember about him most when I think about it, because life is filled with moments of beauty and and sometimes we forget to see him and James reminded us that we need to see them more often.
I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been Terrible, Thanks for Asking, an American public media podcast. Our senior producer is Hans Butel. Our interns are Jacob Maldonado-Medina, Emily Allen, and Marcus Arsvold, and this is their last week. Our project manager is Hannah Meekock-Ross, who will definitely tell us what we got them as going away presents. Big thanks to Emily Kittleson, Raymond Tungakar, Tracy Mumford, and Jeffrey Bissoy-Mettis for listening to this episode. This is our last episode, so smell you later. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. It's, I mean, it sounded like our last episode ever. Right, Hans? He's, he's evading the answer, <laughs> folks. Is it the last episode? Only time will tell. Um, we loved making this. It's just wonderful. We will be back with you sometime soon. Don't worry about it. Our music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. Do you have questions about this episode? We thought you might. We thought you might have questions about this episode. If you do have questions about James, about Kat, Kat writes the most beautiful blog. It is at lovingjamesblog.com. Creating the story, there were a couple questions that came up that were hard to fit into the actual show without distracting from what the true story was about. But they're questions that are completely natural to have, questions we asked, and Kat is here to answer them for you. What do your neighbors think? Our neighbors are amazing. We live in a kind of a rural community outside of Asheville, and all of our neighbors were really supportive of us. They, I had gone around the day of, of his visitation and warned people that traffic, there was going to be a lot of traffic in our neighborhood, and parked cars were going to be parked everywhere, and everybody was like, park wherever you need to. My neighbor across the street said, I lost a son at one day old, and she's in her probably mid-60s, and, you know, I, she just she just said that to me, and it floored me, because, again, I would never have known, but they, nobody seems to think it's weird, and if you're going to say to someone it's weird, then you're a jerk, anyway. <laughs> True. No, no one has, they've, everybody's been really supportive, and the people around us have been in this neighborhood for f- 60 years, I mean, since it was built, so, you know, they're from a different generation. What happens if you move? So if we move, the law in North Carolina, oddly enough, stipulates that we have to have a permit to exhume the coffin. We didn't have to have a permit to put it there, but to remove it, we do have to have a permit, um, which is not a big deal. We just have to fill out paperwork. And if we were to move, we would plan to take him, take his body with us or take, you know, we would exhume his coffin and, and bury it either in our yard, wherever we moved, or if it was a different state where you could not bury a body at your, at your house, we would pick somewhere to bury him. I don't foresee us moving though. Honestly, there's too much memory tied up in that house. Thanks again, Kat. If you have any other questions, I suggest you read Kat's blog. It's lovingjamesblog.com.